Emma Maloney. Dr. Emma Maloney is a consultant anaesthetist based in Melbourne. She completed medical school in Brisbane and went on to specialise in anaesthetics. She moved to Melbourne to complete a fellowship in trauma anaesthesia and four years later is still here. A physiologist at heart, Emma loves doing all sorts of surgeries where she can use different drugs to tinker with people's physiology. She's recently returned from a stint in London where she both worked and travelled hard. When not listening to someone else's heartbeat all day long, Emma likes to escape away to climb mountains, either hiking or cycling, where the only thing she can hear is her own heartbeat. Emma. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, so as Aaron mentioned, I'm an anaesthetist. And to be honest, I do think anaesthetists get a bit of a bad rap sometimes. You know, you meet us for five minutes before your surgery. You never see us again. Who knows what we do when you're unconscious? Um, there's a really good Venn diagram with anaesthetists in the middle. And the three intersecting circles are great lifestyle, moments of high stress, most people have no idea what I do, and which I think is, is quite spot on. Um, most people don't even realise that we're actually doctors and we've been to medical school. Um, the number of patients who ask me, have I done this before, is quite scary. Um, but yes, we do stay there the entire time you're unconscious, monitoring your physiology and keeping you alive. Um, so today I'd like to talk to you about a really impressive female anaesthetist. Um, an anaesthetist who, in my opinion, was way before her time a scientist who delved into areas of um, medical research which had been um, not delved into before, um, a doctor who has an eponymous test named after her which is literally used by thousands of people around the world every day, uh, and a woman whose contributions to the area of obstetric medicine, neonatology, teratology and anaesthesia are still recognised to this day. Um, so today I'd like to talk to you about Dr. Virginia Apgar. Uh, so Virginia Apgar was born in New Jersey in America in 1909. Um, she grew up in a family where her father was an amateur scientist. Uh, so he used to build his own telescope to look at the stars and he did experiments with radio waves and electricity, which probably sort of prompted her interest in science and her inquiring mind. Um, she finished school intent on becoming a doctor and so she went to college, was a pre-med in Massachusetts, um, and she was a really um, keen and um, involved college student. She played tennis, she wrote for this college newspaper, she, you know, she sort of did everything. She was one of those very high-achieving people. Um, she was known to be really fast-talking, really fast-thinking and really full of energy. Um, and so then she went on to study medicine and she was accepted into uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University in New York. So just as a point of reference, this was a time when she was one of only nine females in her medical school class of 100, so less than 10%. Um, and all the women were actually asked to step outside during certain anatomy classes. <laughs> Um, so when I went to med school, my class was over 200, um, at least 50% were female, and uh, we were definitely not asked to step outside during anatomy. Um, so, of course, very high achiever, she graduated from medicine with honours, she was fourth in her class, um, and she wanted to be a surgeon. Um, so she obtained a really prestigious surgical internship at Presbyterian Hospital in Columbia University. 
Um, and she was a really keen and diligent young doctor. Uh, there's this great story that uh, tells the time when one of her patients died post-operatively, and she was really concerned that it was something that she'd done during the surgery, so she asked for an autopsy to be performed, and for whatever reason, the autopsy was refused. So she took it upon herself to go to the mortuary after hours. She took the body out, performed her own autopsy, and discovered that, in, yes, indeed, it was her surgical mishap that had caused the patient's death. Um, I really don't know how many junior doctors these days would go and do their own autopsy in the mortuary after hours. Um, but that just shows how, how diligent she was and how keen she was to learn. Um, in any case, she was advised by the chairman of surgery at the time, and this was, this was now the Great Depression, that times are really tough. Um, there weren't many jobs for surgeons in New York, and perhaps she would be better off doing another specialty like anaesthesia, which was a fairly new um, specialty in medicine at the time. Um, so she thought about this. She thought, why not? Um, the chairman of surgery who told her this uh, was actually Dr. Alan Whipple, who some of the doctors in the room might know of. Um, he uh, created an eponymous surgery, the Whipple's procedure, which is still done to this day to remove the pancreas um, for pancreatic cancer. And so it's said that he recognised her intelligence, her ability and her um, energy and thought she would be much better pursuing a career in anaesthetics. Either that or he thought that anaesthesia was much, a much better job for a woman, but who knows. Um, so Virginia Apgar went off to uh, specialise in anaesthesia. She did four years travelling around the states in the, in the few centres that did anaesthetics at the time. And she returned to Columbia University um, and Presbyterian Hospital in 1938, where she was appointed the director of anaesthesia and an attending anaesthetist. And so for the next decade during World War II um, and afterwards, she built up a really um, prestigious anaesthetic department. They had lots and lots of research. Um, teaching was a major function and they trained lots and lots of um, other doctors to become anaesthetists. Um, and her contributions were recognised um, after this in that in 1949, she was appointed the very first female professorship at Columbia University. Uh, and it was this role which allowed her to devote herself wholeheartedly to research. So during her career, her main interest in anaesthetics was actually obstetric anaesthesia. So she spent lots of time in the delivery suite. Uh, she would assist at births. She would give pain relief to women in labour, so whether that was epidurals or using the gases. Um, and she would resuscitate newborns. And it was doing this over and over that she found herself asking the question, who is it that's actually looking after the baby immediately after birth? The obstetrician's primary and always their primary concern is to, is to the mother and the condition of the mother. The paediatrician often doesn't arrive until much later. They're not normally in the room. The paediatrician comes later and checks, yep, 10 fingers, 10 toes. So who is it that's actually looking after the baby immediately after birth? And she realised that there were lots of signs that that babies have in that initial period that doctors were just missing that were suggesting that perhaps they were struggling or that they were starved of oxygen. And furthermore, she realised that there was no set of standards to assess these babies. So if, if women were given some drugs for pain relief during labour, sometimes the babies would come out and they'd take a breath, but then they wouldn't take another breath for a few minutes. So is that breathing or is it not breathing? Um, sometimes the babies would come out and they'd be a bit blue 
and then a few minutes later they might be blue centrally, but they'd be pink, or, or sorry, pink centrally, but blue peripherally. So is that, is that cyanosed or is it not cyanosed? And so she stated what now clearly appears like the obvious, which is that babies show some really obvious signs when they're first born that they might be struggling and that perhaps we needed some sort of system to assess those babies that were struggling and give them a helping hand. So she observed lots and lots of births and she devised a scoring system to assess those babies that might need early intervention and resuscitation at birth. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most of maybe not most, but a lot of my medical colleagues, we probably don't even realise that this scoring system is not just an acronym. So the APGAR score is an acronym, but it was actually named by Virginia APGAR in 1953. And it has now become the gold standard test for assessing babies at one minute and five minutes after birth. Um, it's, it's really easy to remember. In fact, when I'm in operating theatres doing obstetrics now, I pretty much do it subconsciously without even realising. And it's almost a little, you know, I do it subconsciously and I go, oh, thank goodness, I'm not going to have to go and resuscitate that baby over there. Um, so the A is for appearance, the P is for pulse, the G is for grimace, the A is for activity, and R is for respiration. So the babies get two points for each, a maximum of 10 points and it just gives a really fast and reliable way of assessing newborns and identifying and predicting those ones that are going to need an extra, a bit of extra attention and maybe even some resuscitation at birth. It just looks at their colour, their respiratory rate, so their breathing rate, their pulse rate, their, their irritability and their reflexes. And it's so easy to do, you know, midwives do it around the world every day now. In fact, this test is so prolific that it has been said that every child born in a modern hospital anywhere in the world is at first looked at through the eyes of Virginia Apgar. So this led to more research into neonatology, so neonatology being brand newborns. Um, she started to, so she realised with this scoring system that there was a pattern and that those babies who had low APGAR scores seemed to be the ones who um, were hypoxic and had low oxygen levels. So she did some testing on their um, blood from the umbilical artery, tested all their biochemistry, and she discovered that those babies that were hypoxic and acidotic were the ones that had the low APGAR scores. So therefore, any babies that had low APGAR scores, she started saying, these are the ones who need to be resuscitated with oxygen. We need to correct that acidosis and get them treated really early. She then started looking at the anaesthetic agents that had been used, and she realised that some women who had received certain anaesthetic drugs or gases during labour, their babies were the ones who had the low APGAR scores. And so she was um, instrumental in having these um, agents, such as cyclopropane, um, removed from anaesthetic practice, obstetric anaesthetic practice. Um, but just a heads up, we don't use that stuff anymore. We've got much better drugs that we give you. Um, but she was always open to new things that would make her a better doctor. She never wanted to stop learning. Um, so she was granted sabbatical from Columbia and she went and did her Masters of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. And it was during this time she was approached by uh, the National Foundation for Birth Defects and they asked her if she'd like to come along and join them and sort of be a champion for, for congenital malformations and their research. So she sort of took a bit of a right turn in her career later on. 
um, and she became a real champion for, for teratology, the study of congenital malformations. Um, she travelled around the world, uh, lecturing people on the importance of antenatal care. Um, she was instrumental in um, sort of reinforcing the, the rubella vaccine for all pregnant women because rubella is highly associated with congenital malformations. Um, she lectured in teratology um, at, back, at, back at Johns Hopkins University. She published something like over 60 scientific articles and essays all on congenital malformations. And she was a real, as I said, a real proponent for, the, um, for proper antenatal care. But of course, Apgar had many other interests beside medicine, as I alluded to earlier. Um, she was, music was a big one, so she could play the violin, the viola and the cello. In fact, when she travelled around the world, she used to travel with an instrument um, and she'd join just random chamber orchestras and play with them for the night. Um, she was a luthier. Anyone know what a luthier is? So she made stringed in instruments. Um, there's another really great story that uh, at, when she was at Columbia, she noticed that one of the phone booths at Columbia University was made of uh, this fantastic wood, whatever type of wood it is that's used to make violins. So another nighttime escapade, she enlisted a friend and they went to this phone booth at night and they saw off this piece of wood and replaced it with plywood and then uh, she fashioned this into a brand new violin. Uh, which apparently has been donated back to Columbia University, and if you really want to, you can go and see it to this day. Um, she was an avid gardener, she was a fisherman, a photographer, a stamp collector, a golfer. Uh, later in life, she even took up flying, saying that she wanted to learn how to fly under the Williamsburg Bridge in New York. Um, it just makes me tired just thinking of all the things she was doing. Um, but unfortunately, later in life, she suffered from progressive cirrhosis of the liver and she passed away really quite young, single, unmarried, um, at the age of 65. Um, so during her life, she received many awards and accolades. Uh, she was inducted to, into the American Women's Hall of Fame for her contributions um, to medicine. Um, perhaps the greatest honour she received, though, was posthumous. Um, she appeared on a US 20-cent postage stamp in 1995, uh, which was in recognition of great Americans. She was the first anaesthetist and only the third physician to do so. Um, which, when you think about it, like, how many scientists will we know who will appear on Australian postage stamps? Like, it, it, it really is quite an honour. Um, but while she was frequently the first or only woman in a department to serve in a position or win an accolade, she really, um, she didn't buy into the, the feminism and she didn't buy into the women's movement of the time um, that she was in. Uh, apparently she did express privately her frustration with gender inequality and particularly um, the gender pay gap in science and research. Um, but her most famous quote is that women are liberated from the time they leave the womb and she's also famous for saying, if you're good, you're good. So the Surgeon General of the United States has said that Apgar did more to improve the health of mothers, babies and unborn children than anyone else in the 20th century. So she most certainly was good. Thanks very much.